Welcome to the Prison Steep Podcast. Though I didn't do 20 or 30 years locked up, and I never spent time in the hole or had to make a shiv, after six years in the Texas penal system, I've still seen some stuff. I lived through many lockdowns, endured authoritarian regimes, seen riots, learned how to navigate deeply entrenched racial issues, and as the world around us snowballs further into insanity, I can't help but think how like prison this all is. Yet it wasn't all doom and gloom. I made some incredible friendships along the way, learned things about myself I don't know if I ever would have uncovered, and I learned that Prison Mike was right. They do serve gruel, and there are dementors, though they're not the worst part of it. Join me as I share stories from the inside and dive into how my time locked up has changed, altered, and shaped my views now that I am on the outside. Welcome once again, my friends, to the Prison Steep Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Mathis. This is episode seven, the monumental episode that I am told that many podcasts actually never make it to. Now, that doesn't mean that this will be a long-term success or that it'll be a long-term podcast. It's just getting started. A lot of them, I guess, never make it to seven. So I guess this is kind of a big deal. Uh, you can golf clap if you would like. Uh, I've got bigger plans for this, so seven wasn't really that big of a deal for me. Now, that does not mean that I am not excited about this seventh episode. It's one that I have uh, looked forward to. There's some stories in here that I was like, yeah, I definitely need to share these stories. There's things in here that I would, well, maybe not need to, but definitely wanted to talk to you guys about. And as I shared before, the subject of how food can just play such a manipulative power in prison is just, it's alluded to, it's just never directly talked about. Now, I'm not an expert in all of the YouTube channels and all of the podcasts out there on prison life. I don't actually listen to any podcasts on prison life and um, or anybody that has been locked up per se. And... I also, but, well, actually, I take that back. YouTube, I do watch some shows on it. And specifically, the 60 Days Locked Up, even though that's not a real look at prison, it is a look at jail, and jail is a kind of like twisted shadow of what prison life is. So, that has been interesting. It's also been a way to kind of flash back and bring back memories of what happened during that time for me. Cause there's a lot of things that has, I mean, it's been th- almost three years since I got out. So there's just a lot of stuff that I've forgotten. Definitely a lot of names and, and terminologies that have escaped me. So I've need some stuff to kind of just help refresh the memory. So all that being said, uh, I'm very happy to be here. And I'm thrilled that you're here with me on the seventh episode as we finish up this podcast series about the power of food in prison. So let's not draw this thing out too much. Uh, This is uh, fresh off the heels of the uh, sister's podcast to it, which was episode six. Again, I just want to say before I launch into it, thank you for listening. Thank you for participating, uh, sharing, commenting, all that. Anybody that's left reviews, 
extremely, extremely thankful for that. Arigato. So now in a previous episode, we were talking about the way that food is distributed in prison, how you get it, all that type of stuff, just kind of laying the basics of the how-tos of how all that happens. But there are a few other ways that it also comes in that are kind of smaller, let's just call it more boutique. Uh, You have your visits. When you have your visits, your people can buy food from the vending machines and then uh, bring it over to you. Basically, other inmates knew the quality of your visit based on what you ate. So one of the first things they would ask you is they'd be like, hey, uh, how was your visit? And then the next question would be, what did you eat? And so, you know, it was a kind of like uh, some inmates really got into it and were just like, oh, man, I got this and this and blah, blah. At Lopez, they actually had like pizzas and sandwiches and hamburgers and stuff like that in the vending machine that you could actually heat up and, and I mean, have a freaking full on meal instead of just junk food out of the uh, vending machines. All the other places I saw, though, were vending machines. Uh items and that's it so that was one way another way was uh you had other people like outsiders coming in that would host events and they would bring uh pizza cake uh, some free world stuff like that um but those were very rare those types and and then the visits those were were dependent on how many visits you had another way was that uh and again these are just smaller offshoot ways that you couldn't really depend on but that happened um, the other way is the job that you had. And so and that's kind of what I want to get into. I want to get into the psychology today of now that we talked about like how food is distributed, how rare it is, and all that type of stuff. Uh, maybe even a little bit more on the disparity of how bad prison food is and how it has this baseline, this low baseline. Actually, I'll just share that real quick. It's got this real low baseline as far as taste goes to where... It's good enough to where you're going to be like, okay, I'll eat it and fine, whatever. But it's also not up to par with your memory of what free world food is like. It's not as good as commissary. I'll put it that way. Um, every now and then they would have, so like (laughs) I mentioned prison pizza, that's the prison, that's the pizza we make, but then you have the pizza that the kitchen made. And when you go eat the pizza that the kitchen made, you're like, oh, it's so good because it's different than what you're used to having. But at the same time, the memory of what actual pizza, free world pizza tastes like is there so that you know that what you're eating is a super poor imitation of the real thing. And that's kind of like the way all prison food is. It's a shadow of what real world food is really like. Commissary gets you a little bit closer to that, but it's it's limited. And so every now and, and, and then by doing that, what they're doing is that if they ever want to introduce free world food as a motivator, the jump is such a bit. It's like going from fast food to going to uh, a two-star Michelin restaurant. Like it's that big of a jump. It's that big of a deal. So 
if you ever did get your hands on some free world donuts, some free world tacos, uh, fast food from McDonald's, which all of a sudden is like Ruth Chris Steakhouse. It's like a Ruth Chris burger. <laughs> it's just that much of a bit of, of a jump. You were that much more appreciative and motivated to be able to get a job or get access to something like that. So what I mean by that is that, like, as an example, my first real job, I got about my third month in, I was at Lopez unit and it was my third unit. It was where I was going to be. And they put me as a maintenance clerk. Now, maintenance clerk had it pretty good. You got out of the dorm Monday through Friday. You got out for eight hours. Um, you were working in AC. You would work on a very old computer with a 95 Windows operating system. But you were still working on a computer in AC. And But to go a little bit further, my boss, his name was uh, Mr. Foles. Now, Mr. Foles was he, he was he was pretty savvy in the way that he used the inmates that worked for him. Uh, and because of this, we let him get away with things like telling us about his feats of strength and how tough he was. Um, and we did a minimal eye roll when he would do that. And then also we let him get away with the fact that he called all of us convicts. He loved to say, convict! And we're like, jeez, okay, man. Um... The way that he would do it is he would always bring a little bit extra of whatever he got for himself. Not all the time, but every now and then he would bring extra breakfast tacos. He would bring maybe some extra donuts. Now, whenever he did this, he was very secretive about it, and it was only for his clerks. Because if the other guys that were working, so we had like 12 guys working in the maintenance. Um, the other ones are like the actual workers. We were the clerks then he would have to get something for everybody. So he's like, look, don't don't say anything about this, but there's some tacos over there. If they end up in the trash, whatever, man, they just need to disappear. I don't want to hear about it. And we're like, we knew exactly what he was saying. Donuts, maybe some free world coffee, but usually it was just like some simple foods like that. And it was every now and then, but it was just enough to keep me and the other clerks loyal to him. So we covered for his mistakes, and there were several, and we covered for him whenever he ran into conflict, which was often. He was actually in a little bit of a political battle with Major Ramirez, who ran maintenance, and he wasn't a real major. He just liked to call himself Major Ramirez, and he didn't like Foles. So he was always looking on dirt for Foles, but since Foles fed us, and Ramirez didn't, we specifically always made sure that the light shone good on Foles and not Ramirez. And so Ramirez never caught on to that, so he could never fire Foles because he could never get enough dirt because we, were, we knew exactly what they were looking for. We knew how to cover up for him. And so that's how Foles kept his job was just by simply providing uh, maybe like $5 every two weeks for some extra tacos or a few extra donuts for his uh, for his workers. The warden did the same thing, not in the political sense of struggle, but I'm just saying just to keep his the, the people that were working under him happy. The major, uh, 
you know, the captain, they all had their different ways with the major, uh, his was donuts with the captain and the chaplain, his, their, their thing was to allow their, uh, their clerks to have free world coffee whenever they wanted. If you were working in the kitchen, the bosses would basically let you eat to your heart's content, whatever the meal was for the day. And sometimes they would just kind of let you cook your own thing, especially if you're one of the cooks, the main cooks that they trusted. The more they, the more you did, the more they liked you and the more they trusted you, the more leeway you had, even to the point where they would allow you to have your own side hustle and they would turn a blind eye and they would get what they want, which is their job would get done and life would be easy for them. And the inmates would get what they want, which is to be fed or to get some money on the side so that when commissary came around, they had some extra juice going on. And so that's just the the oil, that, that the grease that just got the, the gears and the engine turning of the system. Now, it could also be reversed in the sense that it could be held over you. So again, like I shared, if a dorm wasn't being compliant, they could run them last and chow. If a dorm wasn't being compliant or there was a rowdy few inmates that the guards are like, we'll just let them check themselves. They let it be known. Hey, because you guys are acting up and they would never identify who it was, but everybody knew they'd be like, because you guys are acting up, you guys are, you know, going last when they do the commissary spin or they wouldn't even say it. They would just do it. Um, and so then it would become the inmates job to police themselves and they would. So, it was it was just the but it was all revolving around food and and food was such a massive motivator in everything that was done because an a hungry prisoner is a unhappy prisoner and an unhappy prisoner if you get enough of them will make the guards lives hells and and it takes sometimes a little bit for a guard to realize hey this is just a job and all I'm trying to do is get from point A to point B. As long as you guys aren't hurting each other, then pretty much I'm doing my job. Not a lot of them were that intelligent to where they picked up on that. But the ones that were, were like, they. I guess they got the game, they got the system, and they worked it to their advantage. Now, the inmates could also use it as a way of both motivating and exploiting. So, as an example of that, my buddy Dan. Dan was he did really well (laughs) he his books were always full and so because of that he always got max spin now you're able to spin at commissary like at that time you were able to spend up to eighty dollars and then later on it became ninety dollars and since we were only going like once every two weeks sometimes a little bit later than that whenever you did go to commissary you maxed out your spin you got as much as you possibly could during that time. And then every now and then they'd have a special that you could get that wouldn't count against your commissary. And damn would load up on that. And every now and then some of the other inmates would run something to where they would have they would have money put on other inmates' books so that they could get more food for them. And then they would break them off like, so let me put money on your books and then I'll give you $20 of that. And so for an inmate that's getting nothing, all of a sudden to be able to have $20 every spin or $25 every spin, he's like, yeah, 
Absolutely, for sure. And so these guys were able to kind of get more and more stuff. And then what happened was that those guys right there were the ones that were the power players. Like I said, if you had commissary, you basically had a respect. Um, you were seen as somebody that had people out in the free world that cared about you and therefore would kind of like uh, fight for on your behalf. But more so, it was you were the guy that could pay people that were doing the hustling and support that. Uh, you were the one that was getting a lot of the gambling tickets and supporting that. Um, you were the one that was uh, uh, buying a lot of stuff that's coming out of chow and whatnot. And so you were a mover and shaker. And so what you, what you did had weight. Dan used that to his advantage in a good way in the sense that we had this one guy and his name was uh, Ronnie, I believe it was. And he had done like 20, 25 years already. And he was in for his next go around. And he was crazy. I mean, Ronnie was was just out there. Um, and most days, Ronnie was pretty cool. He was pretty relaxed. But when he got on his crazy kick, he would storm around the dorm. He put his boots on, which means that he was ready to, he was ready to throw down. And he would just start going around causing all types of hell. And this is in the faith-based dorm. I think they put him in there because they didn't want him in the other dorms because he just kept getting run out of all the other dorms. Ronnie had HIV, Hep A, and look, I'm, he was a Petri dish. He had like Hep B and Hep C or Hep A and Hep C, some kind of combination. AIDS, and I don't even want to know how many different venereal diseases or whatever that he had. I mean, it, he was, like I said, he was a walking Petri dish. Nobody wanted to fight him. Yes, he was a decent-sized guy, but that wasn't really it. It was nobody wanted to get his blood on them. That just scared the hell out of him. So whenever Ronnie would go in his tirades and rampages, everybody just kind of sat back and was like, just let him do his thing, man. Just let him get the crazy out. Now, Ronnie did not make store. Most guys that have been down multiple times don't make store because they burn so many bridges. But what Ronnie would do was he would do other people's work for them. Dan was a SSI, meaning dorm janitor. So what he would do is he would pay Ronnie X amount a week, like a bag of coffee a week, to uh, do his job. So Dan didn't have to do his job. And then he would pay Ronnie, like, I don't know, X amount to uh, do something else, like um, bleach his clothes, Um He'd pay other guys to uh, wash this. Uh, anytime any food came in from the kitchen, they went straight to Dan. They knew Dan was paying top dollar. Um, basically, Dan ran the pod because so many people depended on him. So the only person that could talk to Ronnie when Ronnie got into his crazy point in his crazy spot was Dan. Because Dan was his... Dan looked out for him and Dan genuinely actually cared about the guy, even though he was like, the dude's crazy, but he looked out for him. And so whenever he said anything, his way, his words had weight. You know, I pretty much called him the mayor of faith based dorm or the mayor of J three because he was like that. I mean, he just, he can make things move. He can make things shake. So that's somebody actually using that type of power for, for like a, I want to say like for good, right? 
to counter that, I remember that one time, and again, this was at Lopez Unit, a lot of things I learned early on at Lopez Unit, and then I just saw it repeat itself over and over again later on. Um, I remember I was at commissary. Now, commissary, when you're standing in commissary line, if you've ever seen Seinfeld, the soup kitchen, the soup Nazi episode, it's like that. Everybody stays in attention. Everybody stands um, quiet, respectful, and you're not supposed to talk. You're not supposed to be moving around. You're not supposed to be doing anything. Hands behind your back, at attention, quiet, waiting. And it didn't matter how hot it was. They would have you out in the sun. It didn't matter how cold it was. They would have you just standing out there for maybe get stuck in count. So you'd be out there for an hour or two just waiting. And your whole thing was you waited quietly, respectfully until it was your turn in line. You gave them, you gave them your slip. They look it over and then they just start crossing out all the stuff that they don't have. And you're just like, geez, there goes my list. And then hopefully they'll let you trade that with something else. But you're doing that when anybody's done they as they're walking away all the bags are like mesh so they're clear so you can see what anybody got in their bags you could basically know if somebody's in a workout plan or if somebody's in a i just want to be fat and happy plan based on what they had in their bag the size of their bag and how much stuff they had but the creme de la creme the 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 place of just like I don't even know how to say it. It's the piece de resistance is the ice cream. Everybody tops it off with a pint of ice cream, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, another thing they'll do is they'll it, it. That's for them, right? That's maybe for them and their boys, but that's their way of just indulging. Was the pint of Blue Bell ice cream that they would get, and they would also get like these ice cream cones. And they'd be like bomb sticks or they'd be like, uh, I don't know, like the cone with the vanilla inside and the chocolate and, and peanuts on the outside. And I forget what they call them. Uh, dreamsicles. They had, you know, they, but they had individual popsicles. And what, what you would do is based on who you were showing, like you could actually show favor or show respect by when you come back handing out ice cream bars. And so the first time I saw this, guys would come out and they would just hand these. And it was like a, almost like a Godfather episode where the guys that had the most respect <laughs> in the dorm or uh, whatever would have like three or four or five of these ice cream things right there in front of them. And every time they would just, it was, uh, it was like, it was, it was almost like mafioso in the way that they would come back like, hey man, here you go. You know, it's like. And sometimes it was just that's like one group would buy themselves. Each one would buy themselves ice cream. And uh, so they would almost just keep giving each other ice cream. So the whites, would, the woods would buy for the woods and the uh, MAs for the MAs and the, you know, Otohomes for the Otohomes and the blacks for the blacks and yada, yada. Or it's just people that you were cool with or tight with you would buy. And then sometimes you owe debts. And so you would pay that to, they would say, hey, just get me an ice cream cone. Or just get me this or that when you go give me a soda but that's how you kind of pay debts back as well and so anyway you would be able to know what somebody was doing based on what they had in their commissary bag so i'm in the j3 pod right lopez has a state jail that's next to it and then it's got a whole other section on the other side 
I can't remember if this guy was in state jail or not. I, I really can't remember. But I remember this guy, and he was flamboyantly gay, openly flamboyantly gay. But he refused to be put aside into the safe, you know, pods for just open homosexuals. He wanted, he was completely comfortable just being himself in whatever pod he was put in. And so his name was Strawberry. He had red hair. Like I said, not very creative, but everybody had a nickname. Almost everybody. So Strawberry uh, was walking away from the window and his bag was he had he had one one bag right so I the bottom I don't know what was but the top of the bag was full of pints the most I'd ever seen anybody get was three pints and that's usually because they were giving them out buying it for somebody else or because they were gonna indulge with some friends this guy had like ten pints inside his thing and I'm like what the heck and it's relatively warm outside so I'm like what are you gonna do with all these pints. So I'm asking my buddy, I'm like, what in the world is he going to do with those pints? And the, I guess one of the guys that was in the, that was also in the same dorm that he was from was just kind of like, that's straw, strawberry. He's all, this is what strawberry does with his pints. And again, he's whispering this because he doesn't want to have the other guards come around and, and kick him out of line or whatever. So, but he's whispering, he's telling us that the what strawberry likes to do is he would go back to the dorm and uh he would walk in and he would go i got pints and then he would go to the shower and so if you have virgin ears and you don't want to hear this stuff then you're going to want to skip ahead for about a minute or two because you know this is just life in this place and you know it's it's not for the faint of heart but anyway uh that was just my little disclaimer to give you forewarning so he would go into the shower after he made the announcement he got pints and so this guy would tell us that he'd just be like one by one you would just see a guy get up and walk over and try to do as quietly or indiscreetly as possible and walk into the shower and then he would come out later with a pint. And then somebody else would get up and walk out and go to the shower. And then later on, they would come back with a pint. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, what in the heck is this guy doing? Strawberry liked to observe. And so whoever came in there to get their pint would have to give him a show. Let the pups hang out. Show your Manchurian candidate. Do a spin. I don't know. I, I didn't ask for details. I All I know is that he enjoyed just watching the show. And so he would give away pints to get the motivation. He's, and this guy was saying, he goes, guys, you never thought would ever succumb to that or would ever, ever be a part of that would walk in there and walk out with a pint. And he said, and when they walked back, it was like a walk of shame. <laughs> and they would kind of have their head down or like the tough ones would walk out like, say something say something you know but either way it was a walk of shame and he goes but that wasn't the crazy part he goes the crazy part was when guys walked back with two pints and i was like that's it i'm good man i'm good uh i was just curious what in the world is he doing with all those pints he goes yeah that's kind of his thing and so there's an example of how one inmate can use it 
what he's got available to him over another inmate. Um, I remember I was watching the 60 days locked up. And so one of the, the, the big characters, I guess, in this show, his name's Abner. No, 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 not Abner. It was, um, oh, man, I can't remember this guy's name, but he wanted to be, he wanted to establish himself as the pod boss. So the pod boss at that time was a guy named Tony. So when this guy came in, he wanted to kind of assert himself as the guy. So he showed he had food, he had money, he had commissary. So the way he could have done it is he could have came up and just challenged Tony. Uh, this this uh, 60 days locked up guy could have gone in and just challenged Tony straight up for that right and held that over him, you know. But instead, he waited till Tony came to him. And he goes, at some, he goes, at some point, Tony came to him and said, hey, can I borrow this? Can I get some of this? I'll get you back at store, da, da, da. And this guy's like, yeah, sure, man. He goes, just get me back. And when you get me back, go ahead and throw a, a cone on there, throw something else on top or blow. But what he specifically said afterwards, I guess in the green room or whatever afterwards, was, I got him. He goes, I own him. Now that he owes me something, I owe I own him. And so sometimes there is that mentality. And in fact, I might have actually skipped getting myself into trouble when I first got when I got to my one of my first or second places. It was west or east. I think it was east. Garza East. We hadn't gone to the store. I just got there and I was I had money on my books. I was getting ready to go to store. The guys knew this that I was that was in the bunks next to me, and they were from San Antonio. I was from San Antonio, and so they're like, uh, "Hey," um, they go, "Hey, hometown," and I was like, "What's up?" And they're like, uh, "We see you ain't got no store." I was like, "Yeah, I haven't been able to go yet." And they said, "Well, uh, hey, we got some uh, stuff here for you if you want." And I was like, "No, I'm good. I appreciate it." And he's all, "No, no, no. We know you're good for it. When you go to store, just get us, just get us back." You can uh, maybe throw an extra this on top or an extra that on top. And so naively, I was like, uh, sure, okay. And so I took that. And then we went on lockdown. So I wasn't able to get them anything. And I told them, I said, hey, as soon as we go, you know, I got you. And they said, yeah, no worries, man. And um, as soon as lockdown was over, and that was a very long lockdown, it was like two and a half, almost three weeks. Everybody's out of everything, yada, yada, yada. I go to commissary. I get what they ask me and all that type of stuff, right? There's about four of these guys, right, that are right around me. And so I put myself in a place where I owed somebody and I actually owed gang members. And I was putting myself in their debt. And even though we were from the same place and they seemed relatively cool, I put myself in harm's way. The way that I would say that God was looking out for me or that I got out of that situation was literally like almost the moment that I got back, they were like, Mathis, chain. I was like, what? Chain? I thought I was going to stay here. So I paid them what I owed them, and then I had to pack everything up and take off. So whatever they were setting up, if they were setting anything up, uh, just got undone because of the whole chain thing. But when you put yourself that you you can put yourself in a situation where you where somebody else can actually have a say over you or own you and it can come specifically through food anytime you take on a debt that's 
pretty much what you're taking the risk of doing is you're letting somebody have some type of authority over you. The last part I'll share on this is the social dynamic that goes into food. Who you eat with says a lot about who you are and who you associate with. So early on, because I look white or purely white, I was invited by the whites all the time to break bread with them. Once I started realizing what was happening here, um, I was I had I let them know as quickly as possible. Hey, I'm half Mexican. I'm not pure Aryan. I'm not pure white or nothing like that. Some of them didn't have a problem with that, and then some of them did. So, but by doing that, I was basically saying I'm not one of you guys. I'm not about the white race. I'm not about your agenda. I just want to do my time. And so they stopped inviting me over to break bread and have meals and all that type of stuff with them, which I was totally cool with. When I ended up later on, when I got to the faith-based dorm, you all the whole race thing was pretty much obliterated. And it was kind of like a uh, like a neutral bubble in the in the system. So you're allowed to kind of eat with whoever and stuff like that. But again, whoever you were sharing meals with, breaking bread with, um, uh, looking out for, giving commissary to, uh, whenever you would, like, if you had a friend, usually what you guys would do is one person would cook, and then they would cook in two separate bowls, and then they would bring one of the bowls over for their friend, and then you guys would eat together. By doing that, it, you're just it's just a way of camaraderie of just saying you know i don't know it's it's just you're making a statement without even sometimes making a statement um but food was such a social dynamic there there is some things about prison that i kind of miss and one of them was football games or uh, a movie we were specifically looking forward to and the reason for that is that it was a super social thing in the sense that we knew this was coming up. So we would actually plan for it. So when we went to commissary, we're like, who's getting this? Who's getting that? Who's cooking? Yada, yada, yada. And then, so sometimes like if I was doing the cooking or uh, Jeff or one of the other guys was doing the cooking, we would make four to five bowls and then we would all sit together and watch the game or we would all sit together and watch the movie. And it was just this very social dynamic that went into the whole thing and um so you could actually say a lot by who you ate with i remember when one of the times when i made a statement and i didn't even know at the time that i was making that big of a statement because i was coming out of the faith-based dorm when i got to my first trustee camp i was uh having bible studies with whoever would have studies with me. And at that time it was just four Mexican guys. And so we would meet up and we would do Bible studies. One of my favorite people that I met during my time when I was locked up and one of my, I would guess call him like we were really close, like close friends. Uh, his name was Como big friendly black guy, not that friendly, but with me, he was really friendly and, um, he was a mad crazy Dallas Cowboy fan. So was I. So we really bonded over talking about that. Plus we were, you know, uh, bunkies, sellies. 
And uh, so every now and then, like me and him, we'd br- we'd break bread and have a meal together, and that really bothered the woods, and uh, the woods were the whites, and and it uh, so they would never ever eat with me ever, uh, specifically because of that, and uh, they just saw me as being um, a traitor sometimes, a mix. It didn't matter. I didn't care. I wasn't trying to make that statement. I wasn't about that agenda. So I was like, you guys do you. So yeah, the who you ate with, like even when you went to Chow, uh, when you walked out, you walked out with people you knew, or you would actually see like this whole line of just the blacks that were with each other, that hung out with each other, that were part of the same group or the gang. Then you had the, uh, again, the Mexicans, the Otohomes that would always go out together. Uh, tangos that would always go out together. You'd have the whites that go out together. The Christ- They'd all walk together because they would try to stay within a group and eat together. And uh, so when you went through the chow line, you didn't get to sometimes choose where you sat. You just sat wherever the next place was available. So they would all try to go together because so chow was such a, Food is such a social dynamic. You're you're making a statement when you're when you're saying that. Anyway, where does this all lead us, right? So who cares what happened when you were in prison and uh, food was such a big deal and all that type of stuff? Like this is real life. It's nobody tells me when I can eat. Nobody tells me uh, how much I can eat. Nobody tells me um, you know I can only have certain type of crappy quality food yada 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 and that's all well and good as long as everything's moving along normally the pandemic specifically the lockdown showed us that we can fall into the very same habits into the very same fears as what we would fall into when we were in prison which is hoard load up um try to get stuff that was as comfortable as possible not the stuff that was as healthy as possible. Like we fell into that pattern as a as a nation, as a whole. And you could see that during the lockdown. You saw that when you saw the run on grocery stores and people are seeking out, you know, it's it's a fear based reaction of I gotta control my food source. I, I gotta know that I have food coming in. I gotta know most Americans, most American households have enough in their pantry and in their freezer at a given time to feed themselves for the next two weeks to a month. But the idea that they could go without was so petrifying and fearful that it drove people to make massive runs on the grocery stores the moment that happens. And it just reminded me once again that this power that we let ourselves fall into can make us susceptible to where something can come in and if we feel denied it can ruin our lives i think it's one of the reasons why i've started to embrace the idea of intermittent fasting i specifically remember what really kind of broke through is why it can be so important was this guy that was on joe rogan was talking he was a uh, i don't know uh, uh, uh not a lifestyle he was a longevity doctor and he practices intermittent fasting and he was explaining why and he goes one of the other things that specific that he was a big fan of it he goes it gives you control 
in a place where sometimes you feel like you don't have you didn't have control before and he used the idea of if i'm taking a flight and i'm flying across to europe or i'm making it's a five eight hour flight and they're serving some unhealthy kind of crappy meal on the in-flight meal i can just say because i'm already used to being able to deny food and deny myself and to not be under this need of I got to eat something every six hours, every five hours, three hours. I always have to have a snack because he's not in that mindset. He can just say, no, I'm good. And eight hours, five hours is not that big of a deal to him. When he lands, he's like, I can get a meal when I land. If I don't get it to the next day, I'll be fine too. It just gives him another way to be in control. And when he said that, I was just kind of like, I remember traveling and having that fear. Like I always have to have something to comfort me, to make me feel like, I'm A, comfortable and B, in control. So I'd always have like snacks with me. and But then I would feel embarrassed eating these snacks on the, fl- on the flight or whatever. Or whenever I did a road trip, I always had to have that. And so it just goes to show that it's one more thing that if we can limit the amount of things that can come into our lives, that can wreck our lives, that we let have control over us, it just puts us in that much better of a of a place mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and even physically. Now, if you're a believer and a believer in God, then I think it's also important to note that God, specifically Jesus, took time to identify that he does not want us to be controlled by anything that can, I don't know, just have a outside influence that can make us fearful or irrational or greater than him. And so I remember the the time when Jesus was saying about the sparrows. He goes, they get their food, they get their sustenance. And so if these little ones are able to get their sustenance and, and everything they need from nature, God-given, then how much more will he look after us? And so just reminding ourselves that we don't need to buy into this fear-based place. It doesn't mean that we don't need to be responsible. We just need to learn to have A, better control, and then B, also to understand where our sustenance and good things come from. So that's just a sidebar for other fellow believers just to, to that I was remembering and then I thought I would share with you. Another thing that what this does for me is it reminds me to sympathize with others that don't have this same type of control and that go without all the time. There's people that are within our own country that are starving, that are without. There's people in multiple different countries out there that are hurting, that are starving, that are without. And sometimes it takes us being put into a situation that's somewhat similar for us to be able to identify with them, recognize with them, empathize with them. And the last thing is just also being able to just appreciate what we've been blessed with. And I think that the way that I kept my sanity in some of the darkest times in my life was by keeping that air of appreciation. I remember there was a long stretch of time, I'm talking like for four to five years, every single day when I got up, the first thing I did was I just started saying thank you, and I just would start with the basics. Thank you that I got up. Thank you that I know you, God. Thank you for my health. Thank you that I'm breathing. 
and I would, and then I would just go to my family and my friends, and then all the things that I had to be thankful for, and it put me in just such a right state of mind to where I was much less able to be messed with or jerked around with by other inmates, the system, the guards, just having a bad day. It always helped put things in perspective. A lot of times we forget about how blessed we are. And so it takes sometimes tragedy or outside things to actually show that to us. Now, respect can go multiple different ways. That appreciation can go multiple different ways. The way of showing appreciation is not by stuffing our face with more food, but by appreciating what it takes to actually get us these good things and these resources. Maybe even going so far as to just taking into account the damage that we do just so that we can feel comfortable. Maybe it's just the damage we do to the environment, to the world around us, um, to other human beings. You know, it's I just don't want to be a part of the exploitation just because I want to feel comfortable. But more than anything, I just want to appreciate the good things that I have, the blessings I have. And so sometimes hunger and going without just reminds me of that. And we'll go ahead and wrap up with that. Wrap up with that. Thank you so much to everybody who listened, and thank you to anybody who is going to take the time to leave a comment or share some ideas if you think that I'm off my rocker or that you have something personal you would like to share. Please do so. I would love to hear it. And that's pretty much it, guys. Just want to remind you to stay safe, stay positive. Peace. Thank you guys so much for joining me for this podcast on whatever platform you're choosing. You can find the Prison Steve Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher now, as well as the Red Circle Podcast. If you want to throw your support for the show, the three best ways are to subscribe, leave a review, especially if it's five star, and to share with anyone you think would be interested. Those three things will help me build some organic traction, which is really the best kind. Any comments or tips that you have for me, feel free to share them via the email or the Facebook link that I will be leaving in the description. For all of your support and listening to the show, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to the next one. Please remember, stay sane, be positive. Peace.